This is part two of my interview with Dr. Bristow, a deeper look into the stories of those affected by the flu pandemic and how those stories help us understand our history and relate to each other. It is stories that can drive us. It is individual stories that can drive us. It was your great-grandfather who passed away? My great-grandfather also died in the flu pandemic. And that that drove you to learn more because this individual person who did have a profound impact on your family's trajectory. The way I came to write a book on the influenza pandemic, I was actually a, a historian of the First World War in my first book and graduate school in my first book. And I got interested in this idea of how diseases are socially constructed. They obviously happen, but what they mean culturally really differs. Uh, and so I sort of had this in mind. And on a backpacking trip with my dad, he mentions that grandpa had been orphaned during the pandemic. I was like, wait, what? I had no idea. And here I was, I mean, I'd been interested in the pandemic throughout my academic career at that point, but nobody had, there was one book out on it. And I was like, ah, it seems like it's a little sketchy. I don't think that's something I want to take on. But having already written this other book, I was like, well, wait a minute, that would be super interesting because my grandpa was somebody I was really close to as a kid. Um, he died when I was about 12. So I'd never asked him about his parents. So I didn't know anything about the family and his parents were recently arrived Irish immigrants. So there's no record of them, though a kind person actually sent me information from the newspaper. So I know the dates on which they died. Uh, that's all we know. But the only way I could reconstruct what had happened to my grandfather then was to go try to build this, what I call these lost worlds, uh, to go see like what would it have meant to be this kid who loses his parents in four days and is suddenly thrown on his own um, with no money, no, you know, just, so what's that like? Um, and so that's what prompted me to write the book. And it was really powerful because I think, as you say, having a personal connection or feeling the history we're thinking about, not just in our minds, but I think in our hearts is really important. Um, so it really motivated me throughout my project to keep after it. And I worked on it for a really long time. So it was good to have that motivation, I suppose. The funny twist, Fairly late in the project, I thought, well, wait a minute, let's go see what we can find out about these people. And I, didn't, I couldn't fly to Pittsburgh to look at newspapers. This was sort of pre-everything being digital. So I thought, well, let's at least look at the census and see what we can see. Well, there they turn up in the 1920 census. Hello. They died in February 1920. Within four days of each other on the 24th and 29th, so five days, excuse me, 24th and 29th of February 1920. So either in the fourth, some people are now saying there was actually a fourth wave, or it's the first seasonal flu wave of that same pretty tough virus. But in any case, they died of the flu, and the family understanding was that it was part of this massive global crisis. But it's funny that in the end, well, wait a minute, they didn't exactly die like kind of how I pictured it, but that's okay. It just shows how flawed memory is and, and the way sort of individual and personal memory can, can fluctuate to fit the needs that we have for our own histories. I think that personal connection, it drives me as well. I, I, won't, I won't share them on the radio, but the things that my family has revealed about our past to me as an adult, I'm like, man, I wish I would have, that is so cool. Or that is so interesting. Or, oh, that's so scandalous, whatever it is. I come from an Italian family and I think maybe Irish families are a little bit, they talk, but they don't share, right? And I think the pandemic and the way people 
recovered from it or didn't or moved moved past it is also part of a collective mentality of, well, that was that we went through it and it's time to just move on. And so even though societally, collectively in power, there were definitely motivations to recreate or return to or cling to the status quo. I think culturally also a lot of people at the lower ends of the economic echelon also had that mentality of, okay, time to move through this time to get get going and and that's just life. Do you see any sort of differences between the mentality then and the mentality now? That's an interesting question. Yes, I think there is a different mentality that, I mean, we live in the age of, of Facebook and social media. There's a tendency to just be telling our story all the time to everyone, uh, especially for younger people. And that may be a good thing in some ways. And I say that because in 1918, I think one of the great tragedies is that people are left to sort of suffer alone and suffer silently. There are no public commemorations. There are no monuments built. There is no no sense that this is something we should be talking about, as you say, because that's in part how the culture worked in those days. And then you start reading memoirs or novellas or questionnaires written by soldiers from the First World War that they wrote in the 1970s, so 50 years later. And you discover that the trauma was always there and that it persisted. The U.S. Army Military History Institute at the Carlisle Barracks sent questionnaires out to World War I veterans in the 1970s. And two of the questions were about health during the war. And again and again and again, they described these horrific scenes, right, and how awful it was. I mean, with literally answers with things like, it was awful. And the routine answer is there were bodies stacked like cordwood. But again and again, this conversation that clearly 50 years have passed, the minute you ask them about health during the war, that's what they go to. or the woman I interviewed 85 years after the pandemic, Lillian Kansianich uh, lost her mother in early November, 1918. She was only five months old at the time, so she never knew her mother. But for two years, um, she didn't really have a stable home. Her family sort of moved her from family to family over the course of two years until she was finally settled. But when I asked her about the flu pandemic, which she had no memory of actually, 85 years after, you know, I said, well, did it have an impact on your life? And she said, it changed my life completely. It had to. And that's 85 years later, right? And then you think about even more beautiful in some ways, in terms of being accessible to the broader public, are some of the novellas that were written, you know, Catherine Ann Porter's Pale Horse, Pale Rider, William Maxwell's They Came Like Swallows, even the chapter in Look Homeward Angel by Thomas Wolfe, that's really quite grim. These are filled with a sense of how awful this thing was and the kind of loss that it meant or the kind of pain that it meant to go through the illness or to lose someone. And you can just feel it's palpable that this isn't something that has left these authors, but rather something that's right in the foreground of their heart, of their soul, of their mind, as they share it with their readers in these beautiful works of, of theoretically fiction, except they're autobiographical fiction, and you can feel the ways in which the authors are right there in their stories. So, you know, in some ways, I think we are the same because I think the trauma is there then and the trauma is there now. My hope is that in, in 2020, we can do a better job of giving access to, to listening for those who are suffering. Research on trauma the opportunity to tell your story and to be heard, to be listened to and to be really heard and understood is a critical part of people being able to move into a new life that, that works, that's meaningful, that can kind of integrate the trauma that they've been through. So if we could do that right, 
that would be a really important lesson that we could take. And that's one of those things I think we really can do. Perhaps that's one of those things that for our generation could actually be one of the simple changes that we make, that we're actually ready to hear those stories, to acknowledge those stories. Um, just last night, in fact, on a family Zoom call, which we do every night, we were talking about what we refer to as the martyrs of Kirkland uh, in my family. And they're the people who were at the convalescent center in Kirkland, Washington. A large number of people at that convalescent center uh, died and they died very quickly. That the very beginning of what we were aware of as the American experience of the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's because of them, I think, that my state was able to move so quickly and the people took it so seriously. And my brother and I were like, wait a minute, we actually should build a monument to those people right there at that place. There should be a monument to them. They saved all these lives and that would be meaningful to their families to know that their state recognizes what is a terrible sacrifice, an unwilling sacrifice, and yet a sacrifice with real meaning for the rest of the state. Those kinds of actions I think are actually possible right now in a way that they, they simply weren't in 1918, 1920. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. In fact, I work with a couple of organizations who focus on engaging across difference, in particular an organization called Civity. And Civity's primary mission and, and primary foundation is story sharing and story listening. Because even if the story is completely different or you've not, you weren't there, you can recognize something of yourself inside of it and potentially increase or develop or cultivate empathy by listening to each other's stories. And I think you're right that we are actually kind of doing that in society now in a way that we absolutely weren't 100 years ago. Well, you're raising something really important. And I think it's, it's good to publicize, which is that archives across the country uh, are actually actively pursuing the collection of stories. At my own university, the University of Puget Sound, I know our archivist, Adriana Flores, is very actively promoting a program. And that's just one of, I know, many, many programs and projects across the country that are underway. And I think that's really exciting because that didn't happen, of course, in 1918. And it is going to provide an opportunity because people are going to need to tell their stories and even just in conversations with colleagues and, and listening to people, it's clear that it really does have a, a, a I won't say cathartic, because that suggests that then you're on the other side of something, a soothing, it has a soothing quality, I think, to be able to tell one's stories and to not feel alone with one's story. So I'm really excited about the ways in which I think archivists across the country and, and librarians and oral historians and, and other lay folks are just stepping up to make that storytelling possible. It's really exciting. Yeah, you're right. We live in a different space, at least in that regard, in that we are sharing our stories all the time on social media. On public radio, you can hear StoryCorps. There is story-based content out there. And so we are ready and wanting to. And I think you've probably had the same experience with your students. They're not afraid to tell me, hey, I'm facing this issue or this challenge or whatever. Whereas I, as a college student, would have been like, I'm just going to handle it. I'm going to deal with it. I'm not going to tell them. And I really appreciate that my students, and I don't want them to use it as an excuse, but I would rather them communicate with me so I can support them. And in the world of teaching, I think it's increasingly valued that that affective response, that we actually have a, a relationship with the young people that takes into account who they are as human beings, how their lives are going, and actually how they're relating um, or not relating to the material is one of the great developments of our, of our generation. I hope we continue to move in that direction. 
earlier we we're talking about you know the people who we see doing things that, that upset us or that are, are concerning to us um, i think i want to make sure we don't miss the reality that there are so many beautiful stories to be told as well right now right there is so much kindness and so much caring going on all over the country in all kinds of ways uh, and it goes to something that rebecca solnit writes about in her beautiful book a paradise built in hell where she suggests that in the midst of catastrophes and crises we often become our best selves. We build the kind of community we really want to live in and we become the human beings we really want to be. And I think we're seeing some of that right now where people really are thinking about other people first. One of the things that is special about collecting stories is that it will include the trauma, but it will also show us who we can be. And I think that's a good thing for us to hear. On the one hand, Americans right after the flu pandemic of 1918, right, there's this great need to, to prove American exceptionalism. So you have to forget about the flu because it's the wrong story. The war works so much better. But in fact, I think the stories I want us to tell are precisely the stories of what's going on in the midst of this crisis, acknowledging that we weren't strong enough to prevent it because we're human beings, um, but that in the midst, so many people did so many things right. And so many people tried so hard to help one another in a range of ways. Um, and I hope we won't miss that storyline because I think that can push back, can be a sort of an antidote against the other storyline, which is we have to forget about this because it was so awful. I would argue because it's awful, we should remember, but it's not only awful. Don't miss those other stories that can tell us who we can be. Right. In the midst of crisis or trauma or tragedy, it's not ever just one thing. Of course, there are these beautiful moments. And of course, there are ways we can challenge and better ourselves or find it in us to do better or to be better, to reach out, to help, to connect. I find myself tearing up. You know, when I read these stories of these beautiful, amazing people, I find myself thanking the grocery store worker who hands me the cart, really trying to look them in the eye and make a connection with my mask on. I want to make sure I see you and acknowledge you and, and, and that you're okay and that you're safe. And how do I do better so that you're okay? By talking about it, we're naming it and we're getting it out there and, and recognizing it. Right. And it's not to replace the other stories about the inequities that needs to be acknowledged. That needs to be the first story told. The trauma needs to be told. The fact that some people misbehave needs to be told. But there's also this other story that I think for those who cannot imagine how you build a future, if you acknowledge this thing, I think that might help them see that this isn't only about American weakness. This is about a lot of ways in which people have been not only strong, but also part of a much larger community than themselves. The ways in which pushing back against something that says, I have to be just me separate from you. I have to be the United States separate from the globe. I think these stories help us see why that's maybe not the best choice. Um, I have a classic sort of example of somebody just out of nowhere yesterday. I get an email from a former student. She's writing because she and her mother are spending their time right now making masks they're trying to reach out to everyone they know to see if they need masks. She says, they're really comfortable too. Do you need me to send you a couple? I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it right now. And unfortunately, I didn't need them because my sister-in-law is spending her time making masks and has supplied the family and is also contributing them to our community. You know, it's just going on all around us. My brother has spent the last month working 16-hour days to set up 
uh, free testing on Vashon Island, where I live. He's a physician and a scientist and realized we didn't have effective testing yet. And he's like, well, maybe we could create something. He's now created a whole program that rural communities can use that is now being transferred to other communities. And it's just everywhere, right? People are doing the right thing. It's amazing. I hope people are seeing that if they have the opportunity in the midst, if they have, should I say, the privilege that they can look up long enough to see it. I hope that they do. Collectively, somehow, as the United States, we've we've moved through a lots of things in history with this idea of American exceptionalism and then leading to amnesia. We talked about the pandemic. We talked about how we've just kind of subsumed that into World War One. And that's that the civil rights movement and the, you know, systemic racism that has just persisted insidiously for 400 years. If we are not immediately affected by it, then, well, you know, that's over there and it can't be as bad as all that. What's going on there with us? And are you seeing any indications that maybe we're approaching this a little differently? It's a really hard question. I really want to believe that white Americans are seeing this and recognize that hospitalization and death rates are double for African-Americans compared to white Americans, that Latino and Latina Americans, Latinx people are also facing alarmingly high rates of infection, hospitalization and death. And that that has to alarm them, but I'm not convinced because we have other crises that are ongoing, whether it's what wages people make, what their family wealth is, how many people are shot by police. It's been everywhere forever and nothing has pushed the white community to really fully embrace change and call out white supremacy for what it is. I like to dream that what we're seeing right now may help us go one more step. I think all of us who work in the world of social justice know that we're in it for the long haul. Things don't change overnight. They never have, they never will. We're not going to arrive at nirvana in my lifetime. But could we make some moves? I really hope so. Because if we don't, shame on us. Yeah, I, I really hope so as well. And when you brought up the data, that Black and Latinx populations are or people are getting more affected by this, are dying at higher rates than than white the white population in the U.S. The that's data, and when you say that, it lands on me like, oh, we got to figure that out, got to do something. But I think it lands on different people in different ways just the data. And so that's where, as we were talking about, the stories become really important. Okay, so what exactly does that mean? That means that because of this, 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 and this, we've put them in a position where they're more exposed and more vulnerable. And I don't know, how do you feel about that? Maybe we should fix that. Maybe we should find a way so that that won't happen anymore, or that we can minimize that in some way. The data is so extremely important, uh, but we can, you know, we can all sort of take that data in our brains and do whatever we want with it. But the stories are much more difficult to push back on because in a story we can see the humanity, hopefully, I guess. 
I think that's right. And that's why storytelling is so important. In 1918, during the flu pandemic, there is some evidence that African-Americans actually died at slightly lower rates. Um, it may be because it was underreported. The data is terrible, frankly. So we just don't know. But what did happen in 1918 is in communities where it was reported that African-Americans were dying in higher numbers, white newspaper reporters would point out that that shows um, that they're inferior. And when they would die in lower numbers, white newspapers would report that that's because they're not like us. So they were damned if they did and damned if they didn't, right? And that's the problem with white supremacy is that you can always frame the data to mean whatever you want it to mean. And so those who are really committed to the belief that people of color are somehow lesser are not gonna be convinced by the data, but the stories might be a way in. They always have been and they always will be, I think. And that's perhaps why I became a historian is, you know, I wanna be down where the, where the stories live uh, not where the data lives. The data is important. I God bless the people who collect <laughs> the sort of number crunching data and some historians do. I don't. I collect stories and, and I feel so fortunate that that's what I get to do for a living because I know how enriched I am by each story I hear. Yeah. What were some stories from the pandemic that really landed on you or really that really hit you or, or stayed with you? One that has always stayed with me um, from the, the day I discovered it was a young woman named Edith Potter. Uh, she was from California, actually, and her father had died. Uh, she lived on a reservation. She was a native child. She was 14. Uh, and her mother decided to send her off to the Chamawa Indian School in Salem, Oregon, which was something that native families were pressured to do at that time. And this was the second oldest of the Carlisle-style Indian schools, which had as their purpose, right, assimilating these children by robbing them of anything approximating familiarity with their culture. Uh, they were beaten if they tried to speak their native language, their hair was cut, they had to wear Western clothes, uh, they were kept away from their families. Anyway, so Edith arrives at this school and she's reported healthy enough to begin school. And then in the midst of the pandemic, not surprisingly, Chamao Indian School is a hotbed. Uh, they're shut down for about a month and she gets sick. So they send a letter to her mother saying, you know, dear Mrs., uh, your daughter's sick, but don't worry, she'll be fine. The next day they have to send a telegram because she's not fine. And they say, you, you should know your daughter's seriously ill with influenza. And the next day they have to send another telegram because she's died, oh, God. right? So here's this mother who sent her daughter away. Um, and she's like, please, please, will you send her body to me? I need to do proper rites. Um, well, no, they can't. And that's right. I mean, in the context of public health measures of the time, that wasn't going to happen. But that didn't mean anything to this mother who is now hundreds of miles away from her daughter, who she's now lost to this horrific illness. And she's like, well, what can I do? And they said, well, you can ask again in a year. And then the record disappears. So I don't know whatever happened to this mother who had lost her daughter in the midst of this and lost her very clearly because she was a particular social identity, right? This was a child who was living in a context that was a really unhealthy place to be. Uh, and she dies because of that in a sense. And then her mother also doesn't have the opportunity to ever see her again or to properly lay her to rest according to her own traditions. And that one stuck with me because I knew I couldn't follow her story. And it just spoke to me of the ways in which so many of the stories are lost to us. And yet it was a story that carried so much of what happened, which is 
this thing happened suddenly. It struck some people much more fervently because of their context. And in the aftermath, so many people were just left to suffer with their trauma. And so Edith Potter's story has always stayed with me. Wow. That's amazing. And and you're right, even though we live in different contexts, that idea of loss and the idea of not being able to make make amends, make it right. We all feel that. Like I feel that to my heart and bones. And even though I might not be in the exact context and that can help me in, hopefully that can help all of us in. And then potentially relating it to what's going on now where I can't go see my mom. I have many friends, I'm sure you do too, with, with relatives, parents, grandparents in nursing homes, which are hotbeds. I have one dear friend whose grandmother has been affected. And you can't be there with them when they're sick. Like we can all feel that even though it's not the exact same thing. It's, it's, a, it's a story that can bring yeah. us all in. No, that's right. And that is one of the things that's very different now versus 1918 is that the isolation of the sick is being done so much more effectively, which is much healthier for us, but it's emotionally and psychologically much harder because we're not able to be the caregivers to those that we love. And I think that's one of the things that that really sets this off from the history that I know well. I have one other story, if you don't mind. I would love to hear it. Okay. This is a good one because I think it speaks to what we were talking about, about trying to make change. And that's the story of the Reverend Francis Grimke. Uh, he was a preacher and an advocate for African-American rights. His church was the 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, DC. And he gives a sermon in the midst of the pandemic. And I was able to see a published version of it at the Moreland Spingarn Library at Howard University. And it is a remarkable testimony to the pushback that many people were attempting in the midst of the pandemic, trying to call out what they were seeing. So if on the one hand, we talk about the status quo being reinforced, that's not because people weren't trying to make change. And so his story, I think, is important to know as well. And really, I just want to tell you a little bit about the sermon and what he says in it. He basically concludes that God is trying to awaken Americans to the sacrilege, essentially, of the racial caste system. He says, what ought it to mean to us? Every part of the land has felt its deadly touch north, south, east, and west, in the army, in the navy, among civilians, among all classes and conditions, rich and poor, high and low, white and black. Hmm, maybe this hints at something God's trying to tell us. He says, during these terrible weeks while the epidemic raged, God has been trying in a very pronouncedly, conspicuously and vigorous way to beat a little sense into the white man's head, has been trying to show him the folly of the empty conceit of his vaunted race superiority by dealing with him just as he dealt with the peoples of darker hue. And he goes on to suggest that that's what this pandemic is about, that it is God punishing the country and giving them an opportunity to awaken to their evil ways. And his evil ways are not about whether people are drinking or dancing. He's talking about white supremacy and what he calls the white man's stupid color prejudice. And I just think that's another really important story because it speaks to in these moments, people are trying to call out the injustices and make this a time when people can see the opportunity or the possibilities of change. And it was there in 1918, just as I believe it's here in 2020, with, for instance, the amazing reporting that so many people are doing to call out the problems um, that really are you know, rife in our systems and, and making us realize this is, on the one hand, the stories are important, and on the other hand, the sort of institutional structural realities that create those stories, those people who are trying to make us see those things, you know, bless them for that, because I think they're doing the work of, of you know, they're doing 
Reverend Francis Grimke's work in a sense. And I'm glad that we continue to have those kinds of voices among us. Sometimes it's easy to look back at history as as one story because there's usually a dominant story. There's usually a story we've all been told. But getting into the complexities, I think that's another way to connect. Oh, they were just like us. They're telling these very different stories just like we are. And it is, uh, to me, comforting that someone was speaking up on behalf of people who couldn't speak up for themselves then, just as people are trying to do now. I think that's actually comforting. Yeah. No, agreed. And I think that's one thing to always remember is we look at the past and it it does, it becomes two-dimensional and it's just as complex and they were just as complex as we are. They were complex in different ways, surely. Um, They weren't just like us, but they were complex just like we are also complex. And always to remember about those who came before us, I think is useful. Uh, We tend to have a bit of hubris in our own time and, and I have to fight back against that all the time as I study the past because there are remarkable people in every moment you look any moment you look at there are people who truly were doing the heroic work of of fighting for what's right. This was part two of our interview. You can hear part one at newsincontext.net. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing News in Context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Twitter at News in Context SF, and you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.